Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello, and welcome back to Black's History Week. Continuing our series on the British Armed Forces, in this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, talks to the critic's deputy editor, Graeme Stewart, about the British Army's 30-year deployment in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Professor Jeremy Black, um, there is some debate about when the Troubles started exactly, but uh, most would agree it began in 1969. I wonder if you can say a little bit about how Northern Ireland was garrisoned before that period, between the the period after the end of the Second World War uh, up to the late 1960s. Well, that's a good question. There was uh, a British military presence in Northern Ireland, but essentially um, that was part of the normal process of uh, the British military presence in the United Kingdom as a whole, including for recruitment purposes. Um, Law and order, civil order was the responsibility as elsewhere in the United Kingdom of local forces. Uh, The uh, Northern Ireland, or Ulster as it's sometimes referred to, had what in effect was a devolved assembly in the case of Stormont uh, and a devolved government accordingly. And in comparison with other parts of the British world uh, in the 1930s or 1950s, um, and indeed for the bulk of the 1960s, Northern Ireland was essentially peaceful. Um, There was a separatist movement, uh, the Irish Republican Army. Um, It had made very little impact since the 1920s, and I think it's fair to say was largely quiescent uh, in the period we're talking about. So, so this was the official IRA. The official um, IRA. We're, we're talking about, obviously, about the British Armed Forces primarily in, in this podcast. But um, what is the background between the split between the official IRA, which, as you say, was largely ineffective, uh, and the provisional IRA, which, when we refer to the IRA during the period of the Troubles, is primarily the the, the terrorist paramilitary organisation we're talking about. Yes, I think um, that's a good question. Um, If you go right back to Irish nationalism or as a movement, you will know it had always been um, fissiparious. It had always been, um, uh, as it were, divided, um, most prominently, of course, in the civil war that followed British departure from the bulk of the Republic um, in um, after World War One. And I think it's fair to say that what you've got with the provisional IRA is a recurrence of these long-standing divisions, but in particular in the context of a greater social and political radicalism with the provisional IRA very much endorsing the use of force to push through uh, what was seen uh, in their terms as a sort of social revolution, Uh, My own view, as you know, I've written a book on um, uh, the history of insurgency. My own view is that what you have is a classic um, attempt to put into practice um, um, Maoist theories on revolutionary warfare, 
and the notion of uh, radicalizing um, a portion of the population, uh, specifically, of course, because they're thinking back to the Marxist tradition, the working class, and making um, the, the uh, area of operations unviable for the state so that the state shrivels and the new revolutionary state takes over. And I think that is very much what I would see the provisional IRA doing. It's a violent, radical, anti-British and anti-Protestant separatist group. Uh, ironically, of course, um, as is always the case in these kind of movements, it ended up killing a lot of Catholics as well. But, you know, that is what tends to happen with revolutions. Um, not just they devour they their own, they tend to brutalise the community they're supposed to be representing. Mm -hmm. And whilst we're on the subject of the uh, Republican movements, there was also, of course, the INLA. What, what, did, did that have any ideological or operational um, difference of approach from the provisional IRA, or was the division purely one of uh, animosity between the lead figures? being splittists in different uh, organizations? Um, I'm not sure the use of the word pure is very helpful. <laughs> what I would say is you have to also understand, and you know, you see the same process in other revolutionary uh, uh, contexts. You can see it, for example, in Colombia with FARC, you can see it in, uh, in Palestine. Um, you have the overlap, maybe not necessarily overlap, maybe much closer identification between um, revolutionary movements and attempts to seize power and profit for particular groups. And again, whilst the provisional IRA sought to maintain discipline within its ranks, I mean, in some part, in some areas, you're really talking about a criminal enterprise with different people competing about the opportunities to make money from protection rackets, from uh, smuggling across the border, from um, the, you know, the um, growing addiction and use of drugs. Um, so it's a pretty unattractive uh, uh, situation. And of course, what's, uh, and, and indeed, as you know, you, I don't know if you know this, um, I mean, the Cuban revolution, for example, was to be heavily implicated in uh, drug dealing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying that drug dealing doesn't take place in the part of anti-revolutionary movements as well, but I'm just saying that the kind of attempt to discuss this simply in terms of insurgency, um, as if one is talking about a different political option, is not very helpful. There were people who found their role, their profit, uh, their ego um, in the activities we're talking about. Well, um, the situation, which as you said, for many decades had been relatively um, uh, peaceful, uh, albeit there were underlying political uh, and social tensions. Um, obviously, it, it became very serious during 1969, the, the, the battle of the so-called Battle of the Bogside in, in August that year, saw very serious you know, riot, very serious disorder, um, which led to the deployment of British troops. Um, what do we know about the thinking amongst British politicians and uh, the British Army Command as to what they thought their role was going to be 
in uh, the summer of 1969 and, and what sort of duration they imagined at that time it might involve? Well, I think it's fair to say the British government did not particularly wish to get involved. Uh, I mean, that's for a start off. I mean, the troubles, so-called, began in the late 60s as there was Catholic demands for civil rights, notably in housing allocation. They took a violent turn, partly because of the opposition they met from the Protestant-dominated executive in Northern Ireland. Um, there was political exploitation by radicals. Uh, and I think it's fair to say there was also a degree of political exploitation by a certain strand of Protestant politician as well. Um, Britain deployed groups from 1969 onwards in order to try and stabilise the situation. What they were trying to do was to provide what was seen as an impartial, what they saw uh, initially as an impartial outside force separate to the paramilitary police of the government of Northern Ireland, for which the Labour government in, in Westminster had scant sympathy. Um, so the British sent their troops in as a law and order process. They did not see it as anti-Catholic by any means. In fact, they saw it as protecting Catholics, uh, rather as the um, in their eyes, rather as the Americans had sent in, the American federal government had sent in federal troops to uh, forward desegregation in the South, um, in, shall we say, Arkansas in 1957, um, against the state governments and their National Guards. So the British government did not see it as a military enterprise to maintain empire. And that interpretation, which obviously was given by the provisional IRA and by, shall we say, fellow travelers subsequently, including ironically, labor, labor politicians, uh, um, some of them recently prominent in the party, was rubbish. Um, um, as far as the military was concerned, this was not a particularly attractive proposition. Um, the military was uh, primarily committed um, to maintaining um, the uh, inter-German border in, as part of the NATO deployment. The British role of that has became, had become more significant because of the American focus on the Vietnam War and because the British were perceived, fairly or unfairly, as playing the key military professional role, not least because of France's movement outside the military structure of NATO, and because the Bundeswehr, the um, West German army, although numerous, was not, certainly not at this stage, particularly militarily proficient. So I think it's fair to say this was not welcome to British military planners, it was not welcome to the British government. It was seen as a, um, a necessary form of maintaining civil order. Um, now, if you want to be critical, people always like being critical in hindsight, the condescension of posterity. So I'm saying this with some hesitation. Um, obviously, the decision at this stage not to suspend Stormont um, enabled the provisional IRA to argue that the British Army was in effect maintaining Stormont in position. But on the other hand, to have sent in the army and suspended or dissolved the devolved government 
would not have been brilliant politically given the attitude of the majority population and i think it's fair to say that somebody that suggests otherwise could or might consider the situation if there were rioting in glasgow at the moment the british government sent in troops and incidentally uh, suspended the scottish assembly and the scottish executive you know people need to contextualize which of course is so rarely done these days Yes, well, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting analogy. Um, I wonder at what stage the um, army felt they were moving from a law and order operation to a counterinsurgency operation. Well, um, the IRA sought to provoke hostilities between the Catholic population and the army. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that opposition to the British presence grew in what was a highly partisan environment. It's worth bearing in mind that the majority of Catholic population of Northern Ireland did not take part in violent activities, did not support the IRA, and the claims made by the IRA to, as it were, represent um, the American, sorry, the, to represent the, uh, the Catholic population was ridiculous. Uh, but nevertheless, a tranche particularly of angry and uh, people were thus represented, and that was a problem. And the development by the IRA, first of all, of attacks, uh, then murderous attacks, then the development of what were regarded as no-go areas, which is what they were trying to do, um, areas uh, of Londonderry and uh, Belfast controlled by the provisional IRA, um, they drove the police away, they installed what they called their own law, and they saw these areas as a stage in Maoist theory, the three-stage three theory of revolutionary warfare, which I've written about. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the British Army's deployment in Operation Motorman in 1972 in Belfast and Londonderry ended that, and you move as a result of that from a counterinsurgency strategy, which is what's in place in 72, to a counterterrorism strategy, which is what is in place from then until the end of the Troubles. Yeah. So and I think one needs to distinguish between them, because for, of course, for the IRA, uh, and by which I mean the provisionals, and their protagonists, they like to present themselves as an insurgency. Um, but in practical terms, after Motorman, they didn't really control a part of Northern Ireland. They're really a terrorist movement um, in their practices, um, however much they might like to present themselves as somewhat different. Mm. I, I, I'd like to just explore a little more about Operation Motorman. Uh, um, I mean, it was a very significant surge of British troops in Northern Ireland. Um, how, how rapid an operation was it? I mean, you talked about it sweeping aside the, the no-go uh, zones uh, and in that sense being a very significant success for the British Army. Is that a fair summary? Yes, and in my book on tank warfare, I comment on, I mean, the British were very careful, so they sent tanks, but they had them with the guns reversed, you know, 
Um, you know, it was completely different to the, shall we say, Soviet forces going into Czechoslovakia to suppress the Prague Spring. I mean, it was brilliantly successful because it took the other side by surprise. It was brilliantly successful because it did not lead to the casualties that might have been surmised. Um, it was brilliantly successful because it was more rapid. I mean, you can contrast it with the delays in, uh, of the uh, French in restoring order in Paris in 68. Um, and it was a impressive display, and it altered it altered quite frankly the uh, the parameters. I mean, thereafter there were attempts to recreate no-go areas, but they tended to focus on border territories, particularly South Armagh, where it was easy to run men and supplies over what, in effect, was an open border. Um, and um, in military terms, the IRA became much more peripheral. Um, now, it remained a problem, uh, but um, and the whole issue remained a problem, and you could argue took up a disproportionate amount at the time of the British government. Um, um, but uh, the... Um, by which I don't mean it was wrong to support the... Uh, vast overwhelming majority of the population who were peaceful. What I mean was, um, essentially, it was thereafter a, um, a, in terms of dealing with the IRA, a question of holding the ring. You can never end terrorism. You know, anybody that tells you can end terrorism is foolish and gives the initiative to the terrorist. But what you can do is make life difficult for the terrorists. Um, very hard in Northern Ireland because of the degree to which although the majority of the population of the Republic did not um, support violent murder. Nevertheless, there were many IRA sympathizers and it was an open frontier. So that makes it very difficult. And it was very difficult because the IRA was very generously funded by a mixture of funds it raised itself, essentially through drug racketing and running racketeering and extortion, but also because of money it got in from two very different sources um, from the uh, communist bloc, um, including via Libya, and also from American sympathizers. I mean, I remember when I was um, in uh, the United States in 1988, a friend of mine just happened to be an Irish American, um, put me up for a weekend in New York and he you know, went for a walk on Manhattan. He said, you'll find this interesting. And we went, he said, you know, this bar, he said, is a place where they collect for the IRA. And we went, he said, keep your mouth shut here. And we went, you know, because obviously I've got an English accent. We went into the bar and they were openly collecting um, for, for the IRA. So um, I think the IRA was a generously funded system and the, um, the British government did not um, follow the kind of policies that would have enforced more of a strain on it. I mean, the British government was very successful through the security services at infiltrating the IRA, and a number of senior IRA figures were, of course, uh, providing information for the British. 
but the British were much less good at um, operating in the Republic on kill and destroy missions, like, for example, the Spaniards did in France against Basque terrorists. Um, and to a certain extent, there was an overly reactive quality um, to it. And of course, it wasn't, uh, you know, which you see, I mean, if you think about it, uh, you might say with the perspective of hindsight, did this matter in the end of the day, um, you know, the situation ended. Uh, well, of course it mattered. It mattered both for the people who were murdered at the time by terrorists, but it also mattered because, as we've mentioned, the terrorists were a revolutionary organisation and they twice made very serious attempts to uh, decapitate the British government. The uh, Brighton bombing, which came close to murdering the Prime Minister, and the use of um, a mortar attack on Number 10 Downing Street during the major government, both of which you know, it was happenstance that they failed. So in my own view, um, the British government should have been far more robust in, you know, in sending killers into the Republic to try and disrupt the networks and also in blowing up American arms shipments. And, and the, the decision not to do that, what was essentially a political one, you think, rather than, a, than a, the complexity of, of a military operation? Yeah, well, definitely a political one. Mm. Definitely a political one. I mean, they didn't want to upset relations with the Republic. They didn't want to upset relations with the United States. So definitely a uh, political one. But I mean, I think not only did it lead to people being... Uh, um, killed, um, but um, I think also there was the very serious crisis for, um, you know, Britain caused by the near killing of a de democratically elected prime minister. I mean, you know, it's clear, let's be clear about that. And it would not have been a brilliant move for the Anglo-American alliance um, if this had happened. I mean, uh, you know, given the robust role of Mrs. Thatcher as a supporter of the Western Alliance, and given the fact that um, Britain under John Major remained a committed member of it. So I think in practical terms, it was an astonishingly foolish policy by the American government. And, um, you know, given the extraordinary support many Irish Americans still show to this cause, it's worth noting the comments made in 2016 of the sister of one of the Birmingham victims. This was bombings in uh, two pubs in Birmingham in 1974 that killed 21 people and left 182 injured. And um, she said about an IRA apologist, I wonder if one of his own kids was killed beyond description where all their skin has literally been stripped off their body. They have got no legs and no arms and you cannot recognize them by their face because their injuries are such that they have already been partially cremated. And, you know, you might say all war is terrible um, and you could easily argue that, but I think the way in which terrorists are able to um, attack and are not attacked back was a very serious one. In fact, I had a um, interesting experience on in this report. Just we're just talking about the world of words, which is nothing compared to the real horrors we've just been talking about. But I remember 
somebody on a, I was interviewed for a Texan radio, on one of my trips to America, for a Texan radio station, and they were trying, in effect, to say Europeans were wet, and here's this British academic, and aren't they all wet, you know, standard um, stuff. And, the, you know, the guy was saying that, and I, and, and I said to him, do you know, I said, um, you may well take that viewpoint. I said, personally, I would have a British death squad on the streets of Washington and one on the streets of New York, and every time there is an IRA bombing, I would have an American politician shot dead, and we'll see how quickly the Americans start thinking about it. They chose not to broadcast that. Uh, but, I mean, I think the point is, I think the point is that... that you know, Britain, which is a peaceful state, you know, obviously its empire is being derided by fools at the moment, but it's a peaceful state, which has on the whole been a force for good in world history. Um, and in the 20th century, um, you know, sought to move its empire through to, um, uh, to um, Commonwealth status and national independence and all the rest of it, and did so. Um, the the um, extent to which the critics of it and the assailants of it have been often given a free pass is really quite remarkable. I and mean, last week we um, uh, discussed insurgency in Kenya, and some of your listeners may have been shocked uh, by my comments on British policy towards the Mau Mau. Again, if you know what the Mau Mau was doing, not just to whites, but to, in fact, in large numbers, most of the people slaughtered by the Mau Mau were other Africans. Um, you will realize these were dangerous people, anti-societal, many of them psychopaths. Um, and I think that, you know, people need to consider uh, the IRA in that light. Um, of course, then it's also worth bearing in mind um, that the Protestant extremists contain some psychopaths and anti-societal figures themselves. Yes, I mean, we're, we're naturally talking primarily about um, British military operations against the IRA. That, that was the, the, the major part of, of the troubles. But there are also loyalist paramilitaries as well. Uh, there are uh, moments of British forces colluding uh, with with uh, loyalist uh, terrorists and paramilitaries, um, but how generally would you describe the operations against the loyalist paramilitaries? Well, I think you're. I'm, uh, can I just say? I think that you're buying into in your phrase you just made a rather slanted approach. I mean, you might just as well say that because the British had agents among the provisional IRA leadership, which they did, um, people that they bought the services on, you might as well just as well say there was collusion between the British and the provisional IRA. I think you've got to be very careful in your use of language here. Um, both of them were an enormous problem. The uh, both of them contained murderers and sadists and criminals. Um, I think the principal difference you would make is that the provisional IRA was better organized militarily and that it was willing, indeed eager, to attack British interests across the world and to ally with international terrorist organizations, anti-Western terrorist organizations, which was not the case of the Protestant terrorists. Now, that does not make it any better if you were slaughtered by one of the latter, um, but it did mean that it was a very different military challenge. 
uh, and obviously, as you know, um, there was the assassination of uh, ambassadors, there were attacks in London, um, you were seeing a much greater um, volume of activity and dangerous activity um, by the provisional IRA. Um, the, um, and I think, you know, the high point, if you like to use that phrase, is the attempt to kill the Prime Minister. I mean, that is, that is a very, we're not talking about a lone assassin who is unrelated to a wider political movement and things like that, people like that have alas existed in many countries. And indeed that was the case when the British Prime Minister was murdered, Spencer Percival in 1812. Uh, we're talking about something completely different. Um, and I think that was a very serious moment in British history. And as you may know, in my book on Britain since 1945, I argue that most British historians have underplayed the role in British history of foreign, foreign intervention in British politics, foreign conspiracy, espionage, and we might add in this case, terrorism. Um, where were the major choke points for the uh, terrorist paramilitaries? Uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier about them having bases on the other side of the border. How easy was it for them to cross the border with impunity, despite the, the, the checkpoints and so on? Were they corralled in fairly small areas uh, within uh, Londonderry and Belfast? Um, how was it so difficult for the British security forces, be it the army, the intelligence, uh, even the, the SAS, to um, uh, identify particularly prominent terrorists who needed to be uh, taken out? Well, I mean, several things to say. First of all, it's a long frontier, long frontier crossed by many roads and also where the terrain off-road is passable. Um, the kind of techniques you might now use, I'm not saying they're always going to work, of drones and sensors were not developed to that extent in that period, although drones were starting to be used in the, by the Americans in the Vietnam War, but they, you know, they weren't developed to, to that point. Um, the British had, as you know, a series of military bases, um, uh, but those military bases themselves were under, in effect, siege, and the form of the siege was a, a, a sniping, uh, which keeps people in, but also more particularly road bombs. Um, and in military terms, a key uh, development was the large-scale use of aerial resupply, particularly, obviously, we're talking here about helicopters. Um, and that was a very significant adjunct of the British position. And it's interesting to note, if you're looking at elsewhere in the world, if you're looking, for example, at Portuguese Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, uh, the deployment of SAMs, I think it's SAM-7s, supplied by the Soviet Union to the insurgents, really helps to destabilize Portuguese operational uh, doctrine and tactics, ditto the following, the, the ditto the same thing in Angola. Um, the IRA did not have a comparably effective weapons system, I think it's fair to say, they didn't have the numbers either compared to say insurgents in either of 
uh, those cases. So it's more a question of harrying attacks than being able to make a systematic cross-frontier um, you know, um, uh, deployment. Um, the, um, was it a problem? Yes, it was a problem. Uh, was it insoluble? Um, well, in military terms, um, it was, I suppose you could say, not insoluble in the sense that if you can contain a situation to there is a low level of casualty, that low level of casualty is very unwelcome. But the British military presence in Northern Ireland did not pre prevent not just the NATO uh, things we've already mentioned, but also out of area operations, most obviously the Falklands War of 1982 and the contribution to the liberation of Kuwait in 1991. So in military terms, it was less troubling than many insurgency operations or terrorist operations have been. In fact, that's one of the reasons I would categorize it as terrorism rather than um, a insurrection. Well, I, I wonder if we can, uh, if, if it's helpful to see the troubles in a series of phases. Uh, you've got that first phase from 1969, the, the army goes in as what is essentially, or what they think is essentially restoring law and order. You then have a serious escalation into counterinsurgency. 1972 is a pivotal year. There is Bloody Sunday when uh, first para shoot um, uh, unarmed protesters. That's soon followed in, in August that year by uh, Bloody Friday, the 22 bombs planted by the IRA go off in, uh, in, in central uh, Belfast. That's followed soon after by Operation Motorman, which you've discussed, the way in which the no-go zones were, were swept aside. And then you, you spoke about moving into a different phase uh, uh, from counterinsurgency into counterterrorism. Does the counterterrorism phase then essentially continue all the way through to uh, the, the Good Friday Agreement, or do you see different phases within that period? Well, I think there are different phases within that period, but it's around a commonality. I think the thing that starts to really confuse it is the rise of loyalist terrorism. Loyalist terrorism becomes more acute and more troubling, and it helps to ensure the situation dr drifts from crisis to chaos. Um, um, and also, I mean, in a way, it means that it can't be seen, however much the protagonists of the IRA would like it to be seen, including American politicians who are sympathetic. It can't be seen as a clear struggle between those two sides. Now, you then get a number of different views. I mean, a British captain, army captain, put it to me that essentially their job as he put it was to hold the ring until the loyalist and nationalist uh, politicians realized they would eventually have to talk to each other more seriously and if you're going to see it like that which is you know a good way to see it though it assumes you can go on forever then it is essentially a continuity, but sometimes interspersed with particularly horrible episodes, which encourage yet again people saying something must be done. Um, 
in military terms, there is no real major change in the sense that the majority, well, in fact, the job goes on being a job for the infantry. Um, British armor, for example, remains in uh, North Germany. Um, it's an army task. It's not a Navy or Air Force task, although there are obviously uh, naval units who are used to try and prevent gun running uh, directly into Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, it's one in which I think it's fair to say that the British army has already worked out what it wants, which is the transfer as far as possible of policing um, to local agencies with the British army just there as uh, in emergency. And that that obviously is difficult and proves difficult, not least because the provisional IRA wishes to engage against the British army. Uh, so, you know, which is a significant factor. But yes, it goes on. And I mean, what's interesting is a fair amount of political energy is um, devoted to it. If you read Charles Moore's uh, excellent three volumes on Margaret Thatcher, you will know that from 1979 to 1990, when she is prime minister, she devotes a lot of time to it. I think incidentally, one of the things he doesn't bring out and most people don't bring out is in part that is because of two factors. One, that the Scottish and Welsh issue has been kicked into touch in 1979 by the devolution results. And as a result of those referenda, essentially Scotland and Ireland cease to be issues that play a role in British politics of any significance, a situation that is further underlined by the Conservative successes in general elections. So instead, the British problem overwhelmingly becomes the Northern Ireland problem, as had not been the case in the late 1970s. And second of all, there is a determination to try and lance the boil of um, uh, Anglo-American potential differences over it, which is made easier by the fact that Republican administrations and the Republicans are in power under first Reagan and then George H.W. Bush from 1991, sorry, 1981, gosh, there I'm getting tired, till 1993 are perceived accurately um, as being more willing to um, uh, understand that there is terrorism involved in the, you know, in the uh, IRA movement. And I think that's very important. And of course, another factor, I mean, if you're looking at the external environment, which is really important, is the end of the Cold War, because the provisional IRA had received funds and supplies from the Eastern Bloc, uh, those funds and supplies dry up with the end of the Cold War. And what that does is makes it make it far harder for the provisional IRA to envisage an outcome that's going to work for it. It's also, and this is a very unattractive aspect of it, but it's worth just stating from the point of view of general comments on um, counterterrorism, it's worth stating that the although they are disorganized, unpleasant, and lack the, uh, as it were, um, shall we say, certainly the discipline of the IRA, um, the Protestant terrorists are killing 
uh, as Protestant, you know, the, the, the IRA are killing Catholics, because Catholics that who aren't on their side, or Catholics who they just kill in accidents, so-called. Um, but the, the Protestants are also killing Catholics as well. And it becomes really very clear that the provisional IRA cannot protect its own supporters. And I think that is a dynamic that's also part of the changing equation in um, the early to mid 1990s. And then, you know, the hard work on the agreement, uh, the Good Friday Agreement is done by John Major, as so often Tony Blair gets the credit for somebody else's work. But, you know, John Major does the hard work. And as you know, it's, you know, moving, um, there are the difficulties at the last stages which lead to delay, as you probably know. Um, uh, you know, the Downing Street Declaration is um, uh, then leads to a paramilitary ceasefire in 94 by when the IRA is really running low on supporters. Um, uh, but in 96, the ceasefire breaks down in large part over the decommissioning of terrorist arms, which the IRA is unwilling to accept. Uh, in 97, talks resume. Uh, and that means that in 98, uh, it's Blair who's able to push through the Good Friday Agreement, even though it was Major that had done the work, or most of the work. Um, I think it's, um, so those latter stages, you're still seeing counterterrorism. you're still seeing IRA terrorism, the bomb, for example, at Canary Wharf, um, as you may recall, uh, people are still being murdered. Um, but the narrative is overwhelmingly political. Um, and of course, you've then got the situation that the Ulster Protestants are worried that they'll be stabbed in the back. But that's a different, a different situation which requires a different discussion. And in fact, in part, uh, that wasn't a terribly helpful way to look at it because there was always going to be an element of compromise. So I think, as so ever, the phrase stabbed in the back tells you more about paranoia than reality. Mm -hmm. One of the Republican narratives is that in the early mid-90s, their bombing attacks in the city of London and Canary Wharf were actually quite effective, perhaps in some ways more effective than many of their terrorist operations in, in Northern Ireland. Is there any validity to that? Or was this just a, a, a one more succession of senseless activities, uh, maiming individuals and, and blowing up property, but, but actually the fundamental political process was, was, was already set in chain? Well, it's partly that there are other factors as well. I think the end of the Cold War is more important, as I've said. There are also very large social welfare payments coming out of the British Exchequer to Northern Ireland. I think that's a, a very major uh, factor of significance. Yes, the ability of the IRA to let off bombs in London was um, disturbing, but I think it's fair to say that it didn't set the main narrative for British politics no more than, for example, the terror bombing of the London Tube in 2005 by Islamic terrorists. Um, I, I don't know, it's quite an interesting question here. I mean, as far as the public mood was concerned, um, the, the kind of sentiment mass rather self-indulgent sentimentality that you're to see following the death of Diana 
Princess of Wales in 1997, um, is not really present, present earlier. I mean, in part, again, it's, you know, it's an absolute absurdity. I, I think there were, I think from what I remember, the Canary Wharf bombings, there was some poor um, Indian British people murdered in a, in a newspaper kiosk. Somehow that passed the British public by, whereas they were in, quite happy to emote about Princess Diana. So yes, real people were dying or being injured, but it didn't dominate the news to the same extent. And um, it was part of the IRAs, of course, self-image that it was an anti-capitalist movement etc etc and that it's fighting against a weak capitalist state which you know well that might work for a Jeremy Corbyn if you're that kind of analysis um, but the reality was the actual disruption brought by the IRA in London was very minimal the threat had been to kill the head of you know the head of the government that was a serious matter um, and there was massive inconvenience. Do you remember, I think it was a mortar bomb was dropped onto Heathrow, you know, very inconvenient. But again, it didn't stop Heathrow being a, you know, a big hub in the world air system. So the IRA was a significant irritant, but a lot depends upon how you respond to the irritant. And it, the irritation did not lead the British government to, uh, to have a fundamental crisis. Well, the, um, it's fundamentally seen as a, as a political process that, that led to the end of the Troubles. But as we draw to a close about what was the British Army's single longest operation, I wonder if you could just give your assessment of how vital the British operations, military operations were in, in making the political settlement as it materialised possible. Well, I think that's very interesting. Let's start. I'm not sure it was the single longest operation. I think, for example, um, you know, against the Waziris on the northwest frontier, um, um, the Waziris, incidentally, being people of more honour than the IRA, but uh, against the Waziris on the northwest frontier was a longer-running one. But if we're talking about Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, I think, was a very difficult operation. It's always difficult dealing with people who, as it were, are behaving like whatever you might imagine a normal citizen behaves like before they pull out a gun and shoot somebody in the back. So that's always difficult. And of course, um, the particular nature of attacking troops when they were relaxing, trying to terrorise any a local civilian who fraternized with the troops, et cetera, et cetera. It was deliberately anti-societal and directed against the military. I think, you know, there were uh, one or two episodes, famously so, um, in which the army did not behave terribly well. Uh, the paratroops, um, some of the paratroops. I think on the whole, though, uh, the military operated very well, given the uh, provocation it was under, I think, extremely well. Uh, and remember, we're talking about people who, uh, on the other side, the terrorists, not just murder, but torture, brutalize, you know, really unpleasant, dangerous people. Um, I think that um, it was, you know, I've discussed in a number of my books whether it would have been possible, I don't want to just repeat this here, I mean, people can look at the books, 
But I've discussed whether it would have been so possible for the British state to have done this if they'd been reliant on conscripts, as the French, for example, were in Algeria and as the Americans ultimately were in Vietnam, though those were both very different struggles, particularly the latter, uh, to Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that's a different question. But what we're talking about in the case of the military who was serving is conscription had ended. We're talking about people who were volunteers who maintained their commitment in very difficult circumstances. I mean, infantry ultimately are down there on the ground, holding ground among civilians under fire. This is not war from a distance, war from, you know, 20,000 feet or, you know, from firing a missile a long way away from a, from a warship. This was difficult stuff. And I think the army came out of it with great credit. Um, and I think incidentally, the very way in which so many soldiers and officers acquire in the army acquired military experience that way helped to ensure the high level of professionalism of the army during that period. I think that was uh, an interesting aspect of it. Um, the circumstances were to be very different and also the, uh, the nature of the task and the hostility of the uh, social environment, very different in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, where the army was less successful, but uh, considerably less successful. But as far as Northern Ireland was concerned, um, the no-go zones were overcome. Um, the situation uh, was stabilised. It proved possible to move uh, most law and order over to local forces. Um, and all of this was accomplished without ending the ability of the British military to operate effectively in terms of its other spheres and commitments. So in military terms, I think it was a success. If you want to take that further, one thing you could do, and as you know, there's my book on interwar uh, uh, military activity, uh, avoiding Armageddon, where I've got a discussion about the operations there uh, in Ireland in the early 20s. And it's an interesting thing to consider why there was a different outcome in the Northern Ireland troubles from the Irish, whatever you want to call it, War of Independence. That I think is an interesting question and what that tells one about military proficiency. But there are arguments, of course, uh, I refer to them in the um, in, in the uh, Armageddon book, that by the latter stages of the War of Independence, the army had actually worked out how to do it. It was that the political parameters were changing. I'm not sure whether I would go completely that way, but there is room for a discussion about that. And But I think it is, it's a discussion which people need to read the relevant material on uh, and literature on before making comments. Well, Professor Jeremy Black, uh, author of Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, A Global History, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.